This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience, one night at a time. Get $50 off any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com fool and using promo code fool at checkout. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, December 6th, and we're talking about three big news items in healthcare, Aetna CVS, tax reform, and an Apple Heart study. I'm your guest host, Michael Douglas. Christine's sick today, so I'm filling in for her. Sorry, everybody. And I'm joined by Todd Campbell. Todd, good to have you. Michael, great to be here and, and great to be able to chat with you today. I, for a second there, I thought maybe you lost your way on the on the way to film the financial show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as uh, probably many listeners were sort of questioning that at the beginning too. They were like, wait a minute, I've heard this guy recently. Okay, <laughs> so let's start off with the big news item that really for industry focus uh, listeners isn't necessarily a huge big news item. Aetna and CBS are officially planning to merge. We'll talk about this very quickly because you and Christine obviously covered this uh, heavily recently, and Christine actually was on the Market Foolery show yesterday to talk about it. So, listeners, if you're looking for more details, check out those shows. But it looks like things are officially planned, at least. At, uh, CVS is offering $145 in cash per share plus 0.8378 CVS shares. That's roughly $207 per share uh, of uh, Aetna. Yeah, tiny deal, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. $69 billion deal, uh, yeah. Michael. And, and you know, the, Christine did a great job covering it uh, earlier this week on one of the other podcasts. And I urge everybody to kind of listen in, you know, just to give you the, the highlight reel, though. Like Michael said, 145 in cash plus CVS shares uh, based on CVS's trading price at the time that was announced. It's about $207 per share in Aetna. You'll notice that Aetna isn't trading at that level yet. Um, that's because, Michael, there are some questions about whether or not you know, regulators will okay it. We've seen some pushback on uh, insurer M&A in the past year. So there's no guarantee that this deal goes through. But it certainly is intriguing because it's, it continues in the vein of how will insurers survive and thrive in the future you know, with rising costs of care and um, less ability, I guess, to continuously raise premiums. And, you know, the idea of being able to create a vertically integrated company that not only insures patients, but be, is able to provide them with drugs and give them, you know, care through CVS's Minute Clinics um, is certainly intriguing. So it's something that we're going to want to watch. Well, and one of the things that you highlighted there was, you know, you said, hey, past insurer deals have definitely run into uh, regulatory scrutiny. What's interesting about this, though, is as you noted, it's a vertical integration play, right? CVS and Aetna aren't are, are are in different parts of the healthcare value chain. What's really interesting about this, though, to me, is you know the Department of Justice just stepped in and um, has begun fighting the AT and T uh, Time Warner merger, which is another vertical integration play. And so it'll be interesting to see sort of what the parallels are between that and and this. And I suspect that is one of the reasons why Aetna isn't trading near its potential buyout price, because there's a lot of concern that even vertical integration could have a lot of regulatory scrutiny. Right. There's not a whole heck of a lot of overlap between these companies. I mean, CVS does have um, some Medicare insurance clients through its SilverScript business um, that theoretically could overlap somewhat with what Aetna's doing in the Medicare side of the world. Uh, like you said, it's more a question of, okay, will they be okay with consolidating so much might 
within the industry overall. I mean, these are two Goliath companies Mm -hmm. merging to create an even bigger Goliath. So I think that that's something that investors will want to watch. Probably also important too, Michael, just to let people know that you know the trend isn't limited just to Aetna and CVS. UNH United Healthcare came out earlier today and announced that they're spending five billion dollars to acquire the healthcare provider business from Davida. Um, so I mean, this is something that's widespread across the industry. People are looking at it and saying, how how can we you know survive and thrive in the future? And maybe one of those ways is to kind of get rid of all of the profit margins from all of these different parts of the business and just consolidate it all in one company. Um, we'll see. We'll see if it pans out. Yeah. And specifically speaking about UNH and their Optum group, UNH's Optum has been uh, planning to expand its primary care and ambulatory service footprint um, to something like 70, 75 markets across the United States. And so there's a lot of interest in um, continuing that expansion. And this is just part of that broader strategy. Okay. So with that all out of the way, let's get on to the main news and the big story that we're talking about today, which is tax reform. So folks who've been listening to all five shows know that a couple of weeks ago on the financial show, Matt Franklin and I talked through tax reform, but we were talking about it more from the personal finance side. So today we're really going to be talking about it from the business side. It's interesting because the headline that you see is, hey, big tax breaks for business says, uh, you know, across the United States. But the fact of the matter is that the devil's in the details, which is why instead of rallying on Monday, biotech stocks sold off in response to the Senate's passage of the Republican tax plan. Now, like I said, that's a surprising outcome if you're looking at the headlines, because frankly, the headlines indicated these are big tax breaks. Right. But it's all about the fine print, right, Michael? Right. It's all about, you know, like you said, the devil in the details and what's tucked inside of the bill. I, without a doubt. OK, let's you know, lay this out. We we know that this is a boon to profitability for most companies because you're going from a standard schedule rate that's in the mid 30s down to if you go with what the Senate is proposing, a corporate tax rate of 20 percent. Right. So, wow, that's 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 a big drop. And that's obviously going to flow through down to the bottom line. And I mean, if you look at across healthcare, if you look at effective tax rates over the last 12 months, you know, you've got companies like Gilead, they're at 24%. United Healthcare is at 34%. CVS, which we just talked about, 38%. I mean, there are a lot of companies in healthcare that will benefit from the reduction in, in, in down to 20%. However, in research intensive industries, companies that do spend a, a big, big chunk of um, their operating costs are tied into research and development. So technology, biotechnology, life sciences, to some extent, medical uh, medical devices and expensive equipment. Um, those companies could end up getting a little unfortunate tax surprise. <laughs> yes. And specifically, so... The House and the Senate bills are different, and so we're going to be talking a little bit about both of them. So listeners, expect a little bit of switching as we're saying, okay, so the House bill does this well, but the Senate bill does this. We're going to do our best to make it as clear as possible and signpost for you, but just sort of be warned. So the House bill does away with the orphan drug tax credit, and the Senate bill actually cuts it from 50% to 27.5%. So let's step back a little bit and sort of talk through what that means. So Orphan drugs are drugs for incredibly 
rare diseases, the sorts of diseases that are so rare that it's not necessarily worth a healthcare company's you know, enormous R&D investment to um, find a drug that can treat or hopefully even better cure that disease. So one of the things that the orphan drug tax credit did, and it was passed in 1983, is to sort of entice drug makers to study and develop drugs to treat rare diseases. Yeah, and it really, you know, things like muscular dystrophy and those type of things where Mm -hmm. a significant amount of work needed to be done. uh, But like you said, there wasn't a tremendous financial incentive for drug makers to go out and, and, and take on the risk of trial failure, which, you know, we've talked about on the show over and over again, 90% of drugs that go into clinical trials end up in the waste bin of the laboratory rather than on pharmacy mark on pharmacy shelves. So there's a significant risk these companies take on. And if you're only developing a drug that's going to be used in a couple thousand patients, well, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to make a lot of money, quote unquote, on, on that. Now there are other dynamics, pricing, et cetera, that go in can still make these drugs pretty lucrative. But, you know, back in 83 uh, and over the course of the last, what, you know, 30 years or whatever, um, you know, this has been a credit that many companies have relied on to, you know, help them come up with these breakthroughs in in a lot of these rare disease indications, including muscular dystrophy. Um, and the disappearance of this credit in the House bill and the, and the having roughly of it in the Senate bill does raise some questions of, okay, well, how much of these credits, uh, you know, how much will that crimp profitability? Because again, you're going to end up having to pay more in taxes because a credit, remember, Michael, credit comes off dollar for dollar on your tax liability. It's not a deduction, right? Right. So tax deductions lower your income that gets taxed while tax credits uh, reduce dollar for dollar what you owe in taxes. And that's how come a lot of these biotechnology companies end up with effective tax rates that are lower than 20%. Okay, so you've got your your statutory scheduled rate, and then you knock off all your deductions, and then you get a rate, and then you take your, your credits against that, and that lowers your tax bill even further. So there is the con- concern among some that by eliminating this credit or reducing this credit, you will have less investment into the development of orphan drugs, uh, and less profitability for those companies that continue to invest in the development of orphan drugs. Right. And the National Organization for Rare Disorders actually said that this, and I quote, would directly result in 33% fewer orphan drugs coming to market. Now, of course, <laughs> predicting the future is notoriously difficult, and predicting the future with any precision is even tougher. Ask anyone who's a meteorologist. But it is definitely distinctly possible that this could, at the very least, crimp profitability uh, for a lot of these orphan drug makers. Now, some accounting firms have been talking about, well, okay, so yes, the reduction in the orphan drug tax credit would make a difference, but potentially some of this could be worked over to the R&D credit. But Michael, but wait. <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> Well, but first, but first, before that, let, let's talk through what the R and D credit is and what it does a little bit, and All then right. we'll then we'll get to sort of the other nuances that are coming through in these tax bills. Okay, great, great. So, as you can imagine, biopharma companies spend a tremendous amount on research and development. Just think how expensive it must be to run a clinical trial involving thousands of patients, right? right? Okay, so there are some advantages that um, the government gives to encourage. Uh, companies to continue to invest in R&D, those R&D credits. What those R&D credits can do 
is it can provide you with up to 13 and a half cents for every qualified dollar that you spend on R&D. It's a dollar for dollar reduction to your tax liability because again, it's a credit, not a deduction. That obviously can increase your earnings per share, it can reduce your effective tax rate, it can improve your cash flow. And then another nice thing about these research and development credits is that you can carry them forward for up to 20 years. So imagine that you're a young, early stage biotechnology company working on, I don't know, a big indication like Alzheimer's or something. You're, you're gonna in, incur a tremendous amount of development costs, but you don't have any profit to offset, right? Well, you can carry these credits forward, and then once you launch your drug, you're able to use these credits to reduce your tax liability. So it's a very valuable uh, tool to, I guess, drive research and development, not only in biotech and biopharma, but in life, across life sciences, and of course, in other sectors like technology. Um, but again, we have some fine print in the Senate bill, not in the House bill, but some fine print in the Senate bill, that theoretically jeopardize these credits and make them useless. Right. And so this is what's called the uh, alternative minimum tax. So you've probably heard of the alternative minimum tax before described for personal taxes. And so the idea of the AMT, as it's called, is that the wealthy often have a lot of deductions and credits that they can take, right? So, you know, they itemize their taxes, give a lot, of ch give a lot to charity, mortgage deduction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What the AMT basically says is, well, if you make a certain amount of money, you have to pay at least a certain minimum percentage of your income in taxes. Um, so no matter how many deductions you have, you can't get below a certain effective tax rate. And the corporate uh, AMT works essentially the same way. What's interesting for the Senate bill is that they essentially slashed the corporate tax rate to 20% and then they left the corporate AMT at 20% as well. <laughs> Effectively, everybody will be an AMT payer. Under right. the Senate bill is is essentially what it breaks out at because if you take any deductions off of your twenty percent um, uh, business tax rate, then you're going to end up triggering AMT. And the beauty about AMT is that you're not allowed to, you know, it significantly limits your ability to use those credits. So by by tucking the corporate AMT back in at the last, it was it was actually out of it and it's not included this corporate AMT issue. It's not even in the House bill. It wasn't in the Senate bill until the night of the vote, the night uh, you know before preceding the vote. Right. Uh, and they did it for some funky reasons to make the make the make the deficit look lower so they could get away with uh, get, get it passed using a simple majority, et cetera, et cetera. It was it was they stuck it in there. I don't think it's going to stand, but. The way it sits right now, the Senate bill would effectively make everybody an AMT payer and make these research and development credits useless. And of course, as everybody was digesting, you know, the Senate vote on Saturday and then Sunday and then Monday opens up, they're looking at some of these companies and they're saying, um, these co some of these companies have hundreds of millions of dollars in deferred tax credit carry forwards that they've been planning to use that may not that may end up worthless. <laughs> and you know, all of these companies are spending money in biotech. Uh, you know, on R&D, and they may not even be able to get the benefit of, of using these credits later on. Right. So Ionis Pharmaceuticals, for example, fell 8% on Monday. They've got almost $200 million in deferred R&D credits on their, on their books. And you saw a number, you know, a number of these sort of rare disease focused companies that are, you know, finally going to be able, theoretically, to start benefiting from some of these credits that they've been carrying forward for years are now suddenly sort of faced with this 
moment yeah. where they're like, oh, you know, what's going to happen? Now, of course, as you noted earlier, Todd, the likelihood that <laughs> that this particular AMT um, scheme will remain in whatever final bill ultimately gets passed, if a final bill gets passed, is very unlikely because a lot of people are pretty up in arms about this. Yeah, that, I mean, the, the, now we're going to, you know, if you try and get put your put your put your policy hat on, right, Michael? Right. You start looking, and you're saying there's no way that we can act, go forward by including corporate AMT with a drop of, in the rate to 20%. We're either going to have to proportionally lower a uh, lower AMT to um, something very low, like like 10% or less, right, to avoid, I guess, screwing up the other parts of the tax reform, or we're going to have to get rid of it entirely. But then again, you know, you're trying to reconcile the House bill with the Senate bill. The Senate bill is already pushing up against that 1.5 trillion deficit level that allows them to to pass with a simple majority. So you're going to have to make up for any savings that you, you know, a- a- anything that you increase. Like if you get rid of the AMT, you're going to have to find that money somewhere else to keep the deficit below 1.5 trillion. So that is going. We're going to have to watch and see how this all shakes out because you could create another unintended consequence in fixing AMT that we don't even, we don't even understand what it could be yet. Right. And at the end of the day, one of the key things we have to keep in mind with tax policy is that, you know, tax credits and deductions are usually there to incentivize certain things, right? The mortgage deduction is there to incentivize you buying a house. The 401k deduction is there to incentivize you, um, saving money for retirement, right? The R&D credit is there for very good reasons. And uh, the same right. with- You want research and development in your country. Right. You, you don't want it somewhere else. And, and and what we're seeing globally now is more and more countries are providing and increasing their research and development credits so that they can win away that development activity to their, uh, to their countries uh, away from the US. So the last thing that we want to do is reduce- the ability to, um, I guess, enhance, you know, allow those credits. I mean, it would just be, it would be a catastrophe. It would be, it would just doesn't make sense to me. It would be a bad move. Exactly. Particularly in a, in a country like the United States, which is such a leader on drug development. Yeah. I mean, I think that the orphan drug tax credit that that's, that's either gone or getting cut in half. So, you know, we're going to have to just sort of live with that. And I'm sure that, you know, from an investing standpoint, because we're an investing show, people are wondering, well, where do we go from here? You know, I I think that it was probably an overreaction um, that what we've seen since the Senate bill passed, um, you know, depends obviously on how they reconcile the two bills. It could very well be that the weakness we've seen in biotech and technology really um, has been a a little bit of an overreaction that provides a buying opportunity to some of these leading names. I mean, you still, these are still good markets. These Mm -hmm. companies are still going to be able to make some money. So. Yeah. Just something to keep in mind that it it may end up being more of a reversion to the mean as opposed to just destroying companies left, right, and center. Okay. So we will turn to our third story, which is the Apple health study in just a minute. But first this episode of Motley Fool is, Industry Focus is brought to you by Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Their breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature through the night. They're not just a mattress company. Casper offers a wide array of products to ensure an overall better sleep experience. And their mattresses are made in the United States. Buying the Casper is easy. You order online, it's delivered to your door in a compact box, and they have free shipping and free returns in the United States and Canada. 
one of my friends is a Casper mattress and she's told me how comfortable and durable it is, says that it is easily the best mattress she's ever had. Frankly, considering we spend one third of our lives on a mattress, it's so important to truly sleep on a mattress before committing. That's why Casper gives you 100 nights to try it out. So start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash fool and using promo code fool at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's $50 toward any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash fool and using promo code fool at checkout. Okay, so let's turn to our third story of the day, the Apple Health Study. So this is something, Todd, that you and Christine actually you hadn't talked about this precise study, of course, but you'd talked about the opportunity with wearables and sort of what they can do to um, help make us healthier and sort of this idea of big data and predictive analytics and kind of all this on the May 16th healthcare uh, IF episode. Yes. Will wearable tech make us, health, tech make us healthier? If anybody wants to Google it and, and listen in, it was a great fun show where we, we dove into the different companies that are developing wearables and how that they could significantly change uh, or improve upon um, uh, treatment and, and evaluation and disease management for things like diabetes. We focus a lot of attention on diabetes. Um, what's really intriguing to me about the Apple um, Heart Study that just got announced on November 30th is that you know you're it, it, it's kind of a game changer. It's kind of exciting because we're talking about moving from uh, wearables providing you okay, yeah, I can look down and I can see what my heart rate is right now uh, to the next step of taking that information and actually interpreting it and coming to some conclusions that maybe can help. Um, Save lives. And this is one of the interesting things about wearables. I think when people are thinking about wearables today, what they're often saying is, yeah, okay, sure, I can get my steps tracked, I can check my heart rate, I can, you know, answer tech, you know, answer text messages, whatever the case may be. But what's really interesting in the future for wearables is their opportunity to essentially serve as another data point for healthcare providers. And so this specific study which is being conducted by uh, Stanford Medicine, is essentially looking at whether the Apple Watch can spot atrial fibrillation or AFib, which is a life-threatening heart condition that's the leading cause of stroke. And I mean, just to be clear here, AFib causes 130,000 deaths and 750,000 hospitalizations in the U.S. annually. So they're not looking at something small here. This is a big condition. And frankly, it's a condition that... um, they should be able to gather a lot of data on through Apple Watches. Well, yeah, and this is this is okay. This is important too because think about it. AFib, you're not diagnosed with AFib typically until you have a problem. Right. <laughs> you know, you you suffered a event, a cardiac event, and then they're able to determine, oh my God, that's caused by AFib. Right. Um, the goal here is to 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 turn that on up up on its head and say if we provide people patients with just to back up for a second, what we're talking about here is using the regular Apple Watch, right? Mm-hmm. And then patients can download an app from the iTunes store, right? And that app is going to be able to, by using software algorithms and using sensors, determine what your heart rhythm is and then look for anomalies in your heart rhythm. So it's an it's fascinating because it's an opt-in study and it's available to everybody who owns I think it's the Apple Watch Series One or higher and uh, you have to be 22 or older to enroll. 
it, that, which is fascinating because theoretically you have this huge population of people who already own these watches who may be interested in making sure that they're healthy uh, that could enroll in this study, like you said, collect all of this data. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that prevents some of those 750,000 hospitalizations every year because the way it'll work is that, okay, if the Apple Watch spots an abnormal rhythm, it's going to alert you. And it's going to allow you, you'll have the opportunity to have a phone call or a video conference with a physician. And based on how that conversation goes, you're either going to end up getting in a car and going to the ER or calling an ambulance uh, and going to the ER for testing, or you're going to get sent in the mail a patch um, that will conduct an electrocardiogram, which can be used to determine whether or not for you, you absolutely do have AFib or not. Mm-hmm. By diagnosing it earlier on, obviously you can take preventive measures in your life and hopefully avoid that surprising uh, cardiac event later on that that is so life-threatening. Right. Now, one of the, the cautionary components to this that we should talk about is, so we just talked about how AFib doesn't usually get diagnosed until after an event. So it is possible that it turns out AFib is a little bit more common than we'd thought because, again, we tend to only see it when um, something really bad has happened and someone's already been hospitalized. Um, so it could be that there are higher diagnoses of AFib for folks who it wouldn't have ended up affecting as much yeah. as, you know, sort yeah. of like to hospitalization level. Yeah. I mean, they feel like they, they are con- they've put enough controls into the study design to be able to eliminate false positives, but we won't know. We won't know for a while whether or not that's the case. And the last thing you wanna do is being unnecessarily scaring people uh, and sending them to the ER for something that really might not have caused any kind of real problem for them for 30 years or 40 years or whatever. Right. Uh, so so that would be, I guess you'd say, the other side of this story is, is that you know, you don't want to, um, you, you don't, we don't know what exactly they'll determine if this actually does help matters and save lives, uh, which I expect that you will be able to save some lives using this. Uh, and whether or not that that offsets, I guess, that that risk of, of you know, the false positives and, and the costs of the system, et cetera, that, that are created because of those. But it's still, uh, nevertheless, I think just a fascinating study. I think it's, show, it's showing us, it's pointing us toward the way that technology is going to continue to merge with healthcare over time. And I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you look at uh, what are the defining moments, the tipping points in the developments of new technology. And I think this is, this we're at one right now when it comes to wearables, technology, and healthcare. I would absolutely agree. And I, the one thing I will add is that in healthcare, the name of the game is early detection. And so whether it's cancer, whether it's stroke, whether it's heart disease, the earlier, whether it's diabetes, the earlier that that the healthcare system can get involved, the better patient outcomes are going to be overall. And if this helps with that, then that is going to be a tremendous boon, not just to Apple's bottom line, not just to wearable watch sales, but to the overall health of the American population. And that in and of itself is a huge win. All right, folks, that's it for this week's healthcare show. Questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus.fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. 
This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening and full on. Thank you.